Today we are beginning a series of sermons uh, in anticipation of celebrating Christmas a number of weeks from today, um, looking at the birth of our Lord in the Gospel of Luke. One of the things that will be before us, one of the opportunities of this Christmas season each and every year, is to remind ourselves that we have been gifted four unique perspectives on the Gospel. And one of the things that is conveyed very clearly by Luke is that we have before us a written account, a confirmed covenant that God has fulfilled His promises, that God's precious promises are fulfilled. And we begin today with the birth of John the Baptist. This is a scene which only Luke reports. And over the coming weeks, we'll see that that Luke compares and contrasts John and Jesus in their origins. And while the comparison highlights the importance of the Baptist and his positive relationship with Jesus, it also highlights many contrasts. John is born to aging, barren parents. Jesus is born to a virgin. John's birth announcement is greeted with doubt. Jesus' birth announcement is greeted with faith. John's birth is celebrated by his father's prophetic song. And Jesus' birth is celebrated by an angelic visitation and clouds of the heavenly uh, witnesses. So we're going to focus on three things today. The mission of the evangelist in the opening chap- uh, lines. The mission of the Baptist to turn the hearts of the children of Israel to the Lord. And the mission of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And in particular, this idea of fulfillment, note that what our elders just read were the last words of the Old Testament. The last words that God had revealed to His people. I'm going to send a messenger to the temple. And he's going to see that people are prepared, lest I utter a decree of utter destruction. That The last words of the Old Testament were a decree of utter destruction. This was the same destruction uh, that was carried out on the Canaanites and the Amalekites as they had fulfilled their sin in the land of promise. This is God's holy word, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense." And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, 
And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me now in our prayer for illumination. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and ask you to give us your spirit, so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. That's always a good prayer, but particularly this week, uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's one of the most important lessons of the gospel and that our evangelists want before us. uh, And it will be an important theme for Luke. Now, the gospel of Luke is not signed by its author. But it does open with an extraordinarily personal introduction, uniquely so. It seemed good to me, our author opens, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The author inserts himself and his judgment, his perspective, in the opening lines. From the beginning, the church has recognized Luke, the companion of the Apostle Paul, mentioned many a times in Paul's letters, As the author of Luke Acts, it is not really debated among even critical scholars in our day. It was sort of common knowledge. And it's also supported by those many passages in the book of Acts, where Luke writes in the first person when he is a companion of Paul. For instance, you can turn to to chapter 21 and read the opening verses there. He says, then we went on board the ship. So the author of, of Acts is with Paul getting on the ship. And, uh, of course, Acts is the second volume of the history begun in Luke. So that's why we ascribe this text. That's why we call this thing the gospel according to Luke. He is one, lest we forget, of the most important chroniclers of the gospel. Um, With the Apostle Paul, uh, with John, um, he's one of the most prolific New Testament authors. Think right of Luke and Acts. Um, Luke's uh, books are, are, are full of many chapters. And they have many verses. And if you look at them and start counting words, the verses are very, very long. And so Luke is coming close to writing most of the New Testament for us. And he's the only evangelist, right, that considers uh, the work of Jesus Christ before and after his ascension. 
He begins the second volume by saying, I wrote to you previously about the things Jesus began to do. And now I'm going to write this second volume about the things He's going to continue to do in His church through His Spirit. Luke gives us most of our knowledge about the early apostolic church. And today we want to look at a few of the unique elements of Luke's gospel account. And I'm going to divide this up, I think, somewhat logically into three parts if uh, you want to look and take notes in the outline. The first point is the mission of the evangelist, Luke himself. His introduction, which provides a purpose statement of sorts for his writings. Second, the mission of the Baptist. And we'll look at this over the coming weeks because we'll learn more about it when Zechariah sings his song praising the birth of the Baptist. But uniquely, Luke includes the origin of John the Baptist. Um, other, every other gospel, in fact, mentions John the Baptist. But Luke talks about his birth. Why? What's unique here? And third and finally, the mission of Zechariah and Elizabeth. John's parents, you might not think of them actually having a mission or a job to do, but clearly they do, because Zechariah fails. And it's when we turn to Zechariah and Elizabeth that we see ourselves in the text, Lord willing. Hopefully those who doubt and then believe the good news. Well, first, let's begin by looking at the mission of the evangelists. Luke's introduction, these first four verses, is a single sentence in Greek. It's very fine Greek style. And we see similar introductions to other works of Greek history. If you're familiar with the Jewish historian Josephus, he opens one of his works with almost an identical uh, sentence. And yet, there are components here that, while they are standard, formal, conventional, are uniquely Lucan and Christian. And we want to see where those are. Luke uh, makes it clear that he is not the first to write an account of the events related to Jesus. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative. There are other Gospels. Luke's the only evangelist who mentions them. The language suggests written accounts. And Luke probably has Mark and or Matthew in his possession. He might have some other notes. We don't know for certain. He refers to the source of these extant accounts. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. This is the apostolic deposit. Throughout Luke's two volumes, the word of God is central. And twice in this opening sentence, he refers to the word, logos. First, Luke refers to the evangelists who have gone before him as ministers or servants of the word. My title in this church is Minister of Word and Sacrament. But this is a different sense. This is the apostolic founding ministers who were also eyewitnesses. And then in the closing, he explains his purpose to Theophilus might have certainty concerning, and uh, it's translated with a different word. It's the problem with logos. It means many things in Greek. Concerning the word that he has been taught. Concerning the things you have been taught. So twice in this opening sentence, he focuses on the Word, the Word of God. Logos is a very broad term in Greek. A search of the English text won't always turn up all of its uses in the original Greek text. Luke uses it 98 times. Now again, it's a very common term. It can mean lots of things. It can just talk about a matter or a thing. Sometimes it's translated account, speech, reason. But throughout Luke's gospel, logos word takes on a technical meaning. Even as it does a different sense, a different meaning for John. who says, in the beginning was the Logos, was the Word. Luke tells us, 
For instance, that when Jesus speak, people crowd around Him to hear the Word of God. Did you ever know that? I never really thought about that before. It's just sort of slipped into the text. The crowds came to hear Jesus talk, to hear the Word of God. What's the evangelist telling us? Jesus is the Son of God. And the people, in a sense, knew that. They, they say, and the crowds wonder, because the word Jesus speaks has authority. It's like no other. The gospel in Luke is called the word of the Lord. It's called the word of salvation. This word is almost synonymous with gospel. It's the good news, the message that is the message of, of Christ, of the Christ event, of the kingdom of God. In the parable of the sower, which is, is the parable, the, the paradigmatic, that's a hard word, paradigmatic parable, the paradigm of all the parables in Luke, it tells you why Jesus uses parables. What is the seed? It's the word of God that is sown. The ministry of Christ is the ministry of the sower. He's, he's sowing the word into the hearts. And some are hard and some are soft. And some the devil comes and some spring up and some fall away. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles appoint deacons. Why? So they can dedicate themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's who Luke's talking about here. Throughout the book of Acts, one of the things you see is that as the church grows and expands, Jesus says, the word of God increased. The word of God grew. Notice the language, the imagery of the parable of the sower. The seed of the word was taking root, was bearing fruit. So Luke refers here in his opening sentence to the apostolic deposit and foundation. Jesus himself, who John of course would call the word of God, brings the word of God, the gospel, the good news. He sends apostles not only to proclaim the word of God, but to write the word of God, to be ministers of the word of God. They've written accounts that Luke refers to. And then Luke says, I'm going to set this all in order. So the word of God that you have been catechized with, that's the verb here for Theophilus, the word that you have been catechized with can be confirmed. I'm going to make it certain for you. Why? Why does Luke write? For certainty, for confirmation. Brothers and sisters, the first word of Scripture in the Bible was written by the finger of God on a stone at Mount Sinai. We believe in a scriptural foundation for the Christian church because our God is a covenant making God. He not only makes promises, He puts them in writing, He seals them. He puts a little stamp on them with like the embossment. It's an official document. And the text of the New Testament, his apostles he sent out not just to preach, but to write a word that we might know and be certain as a guarantee. Who's the audience for Luke? Luke is placing himself among these ministers of the word and writing alongside them. He's not saying, we've read their accounts, they're not very orderly, they're kind of confused. He's not implying that they're weak. But he's saying that, I think I can put something together for you, Theophilus, that will make things more certain. There is a unique perspective Luke wants to bring. I want to add something. 
Now, some think that Theophilus is, is a literary creation. It's just a word for, like, dear reader, right? Theophilus means beloved of God. And in a sense, any Christian reading this text would be Theophilus. We all are Theophilus. We've all been catechized if we're members of this church, by definition. But it is a common Greek and Jewish name. It's not like, you know, Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, right? Theophilus was a common name. Could have been a Jew, could have been a Gentile. And the fact that he calls him most excellent probably is referring to a real person. Luke's writing to confirm what he has learned. Um, There's a clear sense of the value of a written account. Perhaps he's writing that Theophilus might have a full background. Maybe he has particular questions. Perhaps there are specific doubts that have been raised. Now, there is no doubt that Luke's second volume, Acts, explains the extension of the gospel in a particularly, again, this is where we want to remember that Luke was not only a companion of Paul, but probably recording Paul's preaching, right? He's probably writing from Paul's perspective. And the book of Acts explains in a powerful way, right, the ministry of Peter to the Jews and the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles and how the Christian church is founded upon this Gentile expansion. How the good news of the Jews, of the coming of their Messiah, is good news for the whole world. Right? The the thesis statement for Acts is Jesus' parting words where he says that you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem and Judea, from the Jewish origins of the gospel, and Samaria, to the broader Gentile expansion, to the very ends of the earth. That's the perspective of Luke, even in his gospel. The fact that he starts, that he picks up the story, as we'll see in the next point, with many allusions to Malachi, the last writer of the Old Testament... Part of the orderly account Luke is getting is putting the gospel in order after the Old Testament. That's why this theme of fulfillment is so important. Now when I last wrote, 500 years ago, the Holy Spirit is saying, turn the page to the New Testament. And so that's why this content is so important. What is Luke writing about? He says, the things that have been accomplished among us. This is why we pay to send pastors to seminary so they can read Greek. What this actually says is the things that have been fulfilled among us. English translations are fine and dandy. Most of them are quite excellent. Better than I could do from scratch, I'll tell you that. But Luke's talking here from the very first sentence about Christ and the good news of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. The things that we have seen fulfilled. He introduces an idea that is important to this chapter and throughout Luke's two volumes. The idea that the gospel events he records have been fulfilled, a part of God's fulfilled plan and work of salvation. So Luke is using this format that says, I'm going to write to you a volume of history, two volumes of history, but it's Christian history. It's salvation history. It's a covenant document. It records the fulfillment of God's promises. In verse 20, the angel Gabriel condemns Zechariah to silence because he didn't believe the words which will be fulfilled in their time. There's that theme of fulfillment again. The words the angel brought were good news. It's the first time this term is used in Luke's gospel. He preaches the gospel to Zechariah. What's the gospel? The word. The word of fulfillment. 
Luke's writing an orderly account, and you have to understand the Old Testament promises that are fulfilled in Christ. It's a little bit ironic, or maybe counterintuitive is better, that Paul's gospel to the Gentiles, right, that turned the Greek not into a Jew, the church not into a Jewish reality, but, but a Greek a global reality, requires you to know the Old Testament better. <laughs> Because the whole point of the Old Testament was that the gospel was for all the nations. And so Luke, writing from a Pauline perspective, emphasizes that, this orderly account. And we'll see that one of the things that's distinctive about Luke's account is in our text today, the origin of the Baptist. This may be a part of the orderliness again of Luke. Jesus' last words before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, in the second volume, compare his ministry to John's. Jesus says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John the Baptist says, I baptized with water, but Jesus will come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's coming in judgment, people. We often forget how important John the Baptist is. Not only to to history, but to the history of the church, to the gospel. Luke reminds us of the importance of the Baptist. And that's uh, one of our themes this morning. And this is part of the content of Luke's gospel, his unique perspective. For instance, if we read through Acts, we see that, that Peter and Paul both talk about the baptism of John. Peter says, from the time of John's baptism, Jesus began to preach. He marks John's baptism as the start of the ministry of Jesus. And Paul in Acts 13 makes it clear that John called for the repentance of all Israel, but now through Jesus, he's calling for the repentance of all the world. So there's this parallel, lesser, greater baptism, repentance theme going on. But John, and this is the big difference, John didn't say, believe in me. He said, believe in the one to come. So Luke and Acts relate John to Jesus even as they relate the gospel to the Jews, to the gospel for the Gentiles. It's interesting that the account of John is situated historically in the reign of Herod, king of Judea, a Jewish king, and in a certain priesthood, a certain order. Whereas the birth of Jesus in chapter 2 is situated, again, sort of a historical uh, uh, bookmark under the context of Caesar, Augustus, and Quirinius. John is the last of the Jewish prophets. Jesus... Is the final prophet, priest, and king for the whole world. What a remarkable thing that the God-man took on human flesh and entered human history. Now, before we turn to my second major point, I'm still talking about Luke and what he's doing here. Before we turn to the good news about the Baptist, it's important that we emphasize the importance that the gospel we believe is centered on this historical claim. Luke is self-consciously, explicitly, formally writing history for us. The gospel is history. Yes, it is salvation history. Now, in the modern world, we say, if some religious person writes history, they're just going to write a biased perspective. It's going to be about their feelings, about their subjective experience, about what they saw. That's not what Luke's doing. That's not what the scriptures do. Salvation history means that God entered time and space and accomplished salvation for his people. He is setting in order events explicitly claimed to be a part of human history. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's what we confess. 
Indeed, he's putting forth Christ as the turning point of human history. And most of history since the time of Lucas tended to agree with him. We say in the 2022nd year of our Lord. That we who are beloved of God, like the first Theophilus, might have certainty that we might be confirmed in our faith. No other religion is founded on such a scandalous claim. The gospel does not say, if you live this way, if you adopt this moral ethic, if you have this philosophy, if you have this view of the cosmos, if you're kind, if you're just. The gospel doesn't say that to us. That's not the gospel. The gospel is none of those things. The gospel said, God took on human flesh. The life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ was to save sinners. And that happened in history. This is why we celebrate in our Christian calendar each year Christmas as a part of this evangelical gospel history. Now this is the time for my annual public service announcement. Some Puritans object to Christmas. And some Puritans object to Advent. Reformed Christians aren't Puritans. (laughs) Continental Reformed Dutch Christians, which is the history of this church, celebrate evangelical feast days. Now, we don't celebrate man-made holidays. We don't celebrate will worship. We don't follow a church calendar set up by uh, a, a church. We follow the word of God, and we mark, in certain days of worship, Christmas, the day our Lord was born. Good Friday, the day our Lord died. Easter, the day he rose from the dead. Ascension Day, the day he ascended into glory. Pentecost, the day he sent his spirit. That's evangelical feast days. That's an evangelical church calendar. Now, I can't tell you if Christmas happened on December 25th or June the 13th. Or March 12th or April 20th. Isn't that some day? I don't know. I can't tell you. Ah, people are laughing. I know who you are. Or, or what's May the 4th? Star Wars? I don't know what day it happened, but we mark it as a historical event that happened on a historical day. So Advent doesn't have some special status. It's just a time of year where we remember that the Bible teaches us that God entered history. And this is good news. This is good news for us. and It's a great comfort for us. So let's turn... And believe me, my second two points are much shorter than my first. To the mission of the Baptist. And we'll have more time to think about this as we consider Zechariah and Elizabeth and the song of Zechariah. But Luke begins his orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled by recounting the origins of John the Baptist, who was born to an elderly, childless couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, if there's any question in the mind of Theophilus or the early church, how exactly to think of the relationship between John and Jesus, Luke presents it clearly as a, as a close and a positive relationship, right? They are related closely by blood. Their mothers are cousins. They are related by both being the product of remarkable, even miraculous births announced by angels. Though, as we have already mentioned, this close, positive relationship is also clearly presented in such a way as to present a contrast. There's a divinely ordered, prophesied, foretold relationship between the forerunner and the Christ. Between the prophet who comes in the spirit of Elijah and the Lord himself. Jesus is clearly greater than John. 
But even the relationship of John to Jesus is a matter of fulfillment. John is the one who will prepare the way for the coming Lord. They each have a distinctive divine mission. But John's mission is to point to Jesus. Malachi's prophecy spoke of a time when offerings would be pleasing as of old. He talks about uh, offerings being heard, received by God. And so it's no surprise that, that Luke alludes to this in how he sets and tells this story. We're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're the faithful, obedient Israelites. And yet, and yet they're living in a cursed time and place. Foreigners are ruling the land. Herod is a wicked king. He's a puppet of Caesar Augustus. They are barren, the mark of cursedness in the Old Testament. And three times here, the incense is mentioned, representing the prayers of the people rising up to God in their offering. And the whole multitude is gathered as well at the hour of prayer. There are faithful Israelites living in a fallen and broken and accursed and exiled land, waiting for their Redeemer. And when the angel, the messenger, appears in the temple, it's the same word in the Greek translation of our Old Testament text. Angelos, angel. That's who shows up in the temple according to Malachi and according to Luke. And the messenger assures Zechariah that his prayers have been heard. The rising incense has come before the Lord. Now why do you think Zechariah is troubled? And of course, people in the Bible are always troubled when they see a divine messenger. It's the holiness of God, right? You fall on your face. But Zechariah might also be troubled because he probably knows a thing or two about the prophecy of Malachi. And when the messenger, the angel, comes to the temple where Zechariah is standing, what's he there to do? Refiner's fire. I'm going to burn you up. It's judgment day. 500 years had passed. And the last thing Malachi said was, unless a decree of destruction comes on over every last one of you. Will the Lord find faith when he comes to his people? The answer, apart from divine intervention, is no And so it's no surprise that Zechariah is troubled and afraid at the appearance of this messenger who appears suddenly in the temple. I always hear the Messiah, Handel, in the background, right? The message is law, judgment, swift and sure. We talk about preaching law and gospel. The message of Malachi is the law. Israel has just rebuilt the temple 500 years ago, and they're not doing a very good job of it. But Gabriel reassures Zechariah with good news. Do not be afraid. And he gives him a specific reason, not just because he wants to be kind. This isn't just a kind thing to say. He's saying, no, 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 I'm coming not with law, I'm coming with gospel for you. First of all, his prayers have been answered personally. He will have a child. That's good news. But second of all, the child's name will be John. John, big deal. John's a pretty popular name in the Old Testament. What does John mean? The Lord is gracious to you. You are going to have a son. He's good news, not bad news. I'm not the messenger. Your son's not the messenger. But he's bringing good news. He will be a child of blessing. He will not be any prophet. He will be the greatest and last prophet. He will bring joy and blessing not only to his parents, but to many who will join them in rejoicing. So, Zechariah is told by this first revelation in 500 years, I mean, What were you doing 500 years ago, right? 1522? I mean, Luther was debating Erasmus. 500 years is a long time, people. And the word of the Lord comes and he brings good news. 
In the Old Testament, the Spirit would fall on prophets for a time and they would speak revelations. But this one would have the Holy Spirit from the womb. He would be permanently set apart. He's no ordinary prophet. Jesus says he's the greatest to be born of women before me. Later, Elizabeth will report that at the sound of Mary's greeting, John leaps in her womb, even as an infant. This prophet is filled with the Holy Spirit and recognizes, points to his Lord. He is set fully apart. I'm a minister of word and sacrament. I'm also a husband, a dad, a so-so soccer coach. John was just a prophet. Go live in the wilderness, man. You got nothing else to do. Later, Gabriel will tell Zechariah that he has been sent to tell him this good news, this gospel. And what is the gospel? What's the good news? Malachi foretold the good news of this prophet who comes in the spirit of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's the day of judgment. Before the day of judgment, I'll send you Elijah. He's the flashing yellow light on the dashboard. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. To understand the good news of John the Baptist, you have to understand the bad news of basically the whole Old Testament. God's people just kept sinning every day, from the first day God made the covenant to the last day, written down. They earned for themselves the decree of utter destruction. But that's not what God gave them. He gave them John and Jesus instead. John comes with a warning of judgment, but he comes to prepare people that there might be faith when their Savior comes. Malachi is warning the people of the great and awesome day of the Lord, a day of judgment and purification. But Elijah, one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, calls for repentance and promises the forgiveness of sins by faith. This is the bad news and the good news of Christmas. The law and the gospel of Christmas, which brings us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, our third and final point. Though walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord, their commandment was yet to believe the word of the Lord. They represent faithful Israelites who desired and yet were under an oath, an edict of condemnation. The good news, they were called to believe the gospel that came to them. God's gospel demanded of them faith. But Zechariah did not believe. And for this he was cursed. Unable to rejoice. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I'm going to tell you a story of good news. I'm going to, you sit down, I'm going to write you a gospel history. Let's start with someone who doesn't believe. <laughs> isn't it interesting that as a historian, as a, as a narrator, Luke starts with someone who doesn't believe. But who is this someone? We have in our hymnals the song of Zechariah. It's a really good song. He rejoices, he believes, he praises. Zechariah represents a faithful Israelite who was yet blinded to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of the Messiah. And as the Apostle Paul comes, the minister to the Gentiles, he longs, he is brokenhearted for the Jews who don't believe, whose hearts are hard. And he preaches and he wishes that he could give up his own salvation, that more of them might be saved, that all of them might be saved. And so Luke starts his gospel with a Jew who comes to believe and comes to praise and sing the praises of John and Jesus. Zechariah doesn't believe because he looks at himself. He looks at his own power. I'm an old man. Look, I've done everything right all these years. I still don't have a baby. Kind of sounds like Sarah in Genesis 16. God has closed my womb. 
Blame it on God. But Luke wants us to know that Jewish unbelief, our unbelief, need not be fatal, need not be final, as long as the gospel is preached. This is one final contrast between John and Jesus, perhaps the most telling one. Zachariah doesn't believe the gospel, but as Elizabeth points out when Mary visits her, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. There's that word again, the fulfillment of God's promises. God will do what he says. And Luke wants us to know that God has done what he promised, and he will do what he's promised, and he is doing what he promised in his gospel. Things aren't what they appear to be. God can be good in ways that we can't imagine. And that's the good news of the gospel. We are called from the opening page to faith by this word. Let's receive this word this day in faith. Let's receive this sacrament, those of you who believe in faith, as a confirmation of this faith in our hearts. Let us pray. It is beyond our comprehending, dear Lord, how the eternal word could be made flesh. And yet we confess this mystery. And we are mindful that he sealed it with a written word that we can read and comprehend. A word in Luke's gospel, a word in Malachi, a word in Romans, Paul's letters, in the book of Acts. Lord, may we not be dumb to your beautiful voice. May we hear... Not the silence of Zechariah's unbelief, but may we hear your voice in the gospel calling to us to believe and to trust in your kindness, in your love, in your mercy, in your deliverance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.